What's up, Danny? Hey, how's it going, Tyler? Not much. We're just going to record episode 145 of Fried Squirms. I mean, if y'all are listening to this, first off, by this time, I will have already put out an episode on Thursday. If you were wondering why you guys listened to an episode on Thursday last week, that is not a mistake. That's going to be our new day. That's just some of the growing pains with the whole new network setup. But hopefully it's going to be because we have more shows coming. And so that's exciting. Sooner than I think we were expecting, really. But more shows are coming. Release dates might even get switched around more. But that's something we'll just have to figure out more in the future as it comes up. But to start off, though, we're also going to go with a new segment on this episode. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So, especially in the last, I don't know, two years worth of episodes, we have not... Like, hidden the fact that this is fried squirms because we're stoned when we're watching the movies, we're stoned when we're talking about the movies, we're stoned when we're editing the episodes. We're basically just stoned. So we figured, why not start every episode with green hits? Yeah, I like it. I I think it's a, a good way to introduce some of our listeners to what we like to do. And we're probably going to cut down a lot on the news just because we're not going to be coming out as close to the date as we record as in the past we were always like a week and a day off anyway you know what i mean now it'd be like a week and a half off and it's not really news anymore (laughs) if we have news we'll talk about it or if anything gets us stupid excited we'll talk about it yeah exactly i think things that are a little bit more pressing a little bit more pertinent yeah a little bit more personal yeah absolutely like Underwater comes out this week, and I'm probably going to go try to see it if I have extra time this weekend. Yeah, it looks like a fun movie. It completely looks like K-Stew versus Cthulhu. Potentially just K-Stew in an underwater version of The Descent, from what I've seen. But either way, I'm down. So Could you say a Cthulhu? Oh, you know what? We can just go home. That... <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> That's a wrap. You just won the episode. I think with that, I, I don't have a theme or anything for our green hits yet, so this episode you guys are just going to have to pretend that like I made a demonic voice coughing or something, <laughs> but we should probably get out. What, what do you have today? I mean, we've already talked about what we have off camera. Right, so I've brought two different strains with me today, and the first one I've got is Tropicana Punch, mainly because it's a cross of Tropicana Cookies and a Purple Punch, and it's a hybrid, and it's more on the sativa side comes in at about 24% on the THC scale. It says it roughly carries notes of orange and passion fruit. Well, I think you're going to have to let us know whether it carries notes of orange and passion fruit once we hit it here in a oh, second. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to be bringing along some Green Goblin today. Depending where you get your Green Goblin, sometimes it's more just like the family-friendly name for Green Crack. <laughs> Usually it's got something else mixed in. I happen to know that the genetics on my Green Goblin is that it is Green Crack mixed with Bruce Banner number 7. Nice, hell yeah. So, also a sativa because I'm not trying to go to sleep on this pod. Yeah, understandable. In general, we're probably going to be going with like sativas and hybrids just as a warning. It's not that we don't get down to indicas. It's just that like that's my oh, late man. night. <laughs> Dude, we turn into sleepy boys if not. Oh yeah, we turn into sleepy boys anyway. Like you guys don't need us like hitting some of that like I don't know like some dark some star or some or shit. Yeah. And we've done it before, but and we'll still mix it in every now and again. Like if I get some like super dank strawberry Kush or something like. Oh yeah, I'm always up for that. But I, I know what you're saying as far as recording goes, it might not be as. Uh... 
where we wanted to be. Yeah, and this Green Goblin, it's only been test, uh, mine's tested at like 18.6% THC, but it's been doing pretty good for me this weekend. Yeah. So uh, let's, uh, as always, I'm going out with my Firefly 2. I think well, you got, got the Starry 3. Starry 3, yeah. So the other one I do want to talk about too, because I didn't roll it up in a joint form, is the Bubblegum. Oh, yeah. know the genetics on that one. So the Bubblegum is a mix of Bubblegum and Chemdog in another hybrid 50-50 I think this one's a little bit more, just a little bit on the indica side, at least in okay. my experience, but right around 15%. Well, I figure we'll probably hit that joint about the time that we hit the how does it make you squeal. Yeah, then we can relate it back. But let's start trading off on these bad boys yeah. for a second. You guys are going to have to deal with like five seconds of silence. Well, proper use of my Firefly 2 means that I should be taking an 8 to 15 second draw. So you guys might not hear of me for 8 to 15 seconds, but... <laughs> it's okay, I'll try to keep you guys entertained in the meantime. Because on mine, it takes a little while to heat up, and the thing I like about it, too, is you can take as many draws as you need. It roughly takes about 10 to 15 seconds to fill the chamber in between draws, but I like it. It's a nice little portable device. It's affordable, once again. So for those on the go, something that's discreet, a nice little LED readout. I like it. It's fun. Man, I'm always a little bit surprised at how diesel-y this Green Goblin is. Oh, yeah, I love some diesel. <laughs> you know, usually I'm a little bit more of a pine guy. Yeah. Pine or citrus. I'm kind of right there with you, too. I do like my pineys and a little bit more on the citrus side, yeah. I will say that my shop, my grower, his stuff tends to be a little bit more on, like, the earthy side, which I have nothing against. But as things loosen up this year as they're required by law to before like July 1st, although I'm, I think they're still figuring out exactly how that's going to look. I'm excited to try some of these strains that I know that are coming from around town. So, Yeah, that's going to be really fun for the likes of you and me because that's going to open up all kinds of different strains, different shops. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, right now, shout out to Greenhouse Pharmacy for mine. Yeah, which I'm uh, Stokes here in town. Some others that have been on the show before are also clients, so yeah, I like the shop. It's kind of the same thing. They, they tend to go a little bit more on the earthy side of things. On occasion, you'll get some citrusy guys, but mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, hit or miss on that front. So yeah, I like that. That's a good hit on the Firefly. I'm excited for yours. Yeah, so here we go. A little, a little bit, a little fruity. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, I like the taste out of that. Ooh, I'm curious what that would taste like through mine. Yeah, well, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, I mean... And it's no, I mean, I think we'd both say this. I'm not trying to get down on your oh, piece no, any, no. but the Firefly, as far as taste oh, goes. Yeah, it's one of the top ends for sure. I'm not complaining. Yeah, we're almost always going to have to try every strain through that yeah. just because. You can definitely taste the terpene profiles in yours. Mine, after a couple of hits, it kind of diminishes. But yeah, yours is kind of a little bit more true. Anyway, we'll get a little bit less rambling about it as we go on, but I think that was our first green hits. If we do have any little bit of news to get to this week, we can. But otherwise, I suppose we can get right into the... Uh... I do actually I have one thing of news, just because it's a follow-up from something we talked about almost an entire year ago. Oh, wow. A year ago, maybe even more at this point, they dropped a teaser for New Mutants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about it here on the show. And we thought it was interesting because it seemed like Fox was taking the X-Men in kind of a horror direction. I don't know too much about the New Mutants, but I know a little bit. You know, it was kind of this X-Men squad that was brought in, like, late mid-90s. I think mid-90s? Uh, probably older than that. 
thinking about the characters involved in New Mutants, I think it's older than that. But it was, you know, it was one of those things like X-Men had been going for a while, and so they wanted to refresh it with literally New Mutants. It's yeah. in the name, right? We saw that teaser. It looked pretty horror-y. You had, like, Arya Stark in there as Wolfsbane and shit. Yeah, it was awesome. pretty cool. And then Fox was bought by Disney, and nobody knew what the fuck was going to happen to it. And it didn't come out, and it didn't come out, and it didn't come out. And a couple days ago, it was announced that we'd still be getting a trailer, and apparently they're still going to put it out. Trailer dropped this morning. We're still getting New Mutants. It's looking more superhero-y now. I did watch the trailer earlier today, though, but there's still definite, like, strong horror elements. So. Well, good. Cool. I'm not sure for how long those horror elements will last in the movie before it gives way to more flat-out superheroics, but they seem to at least be going for a darker theme. And I think on the heels of that, there might have been a little bit more news about the new Doctor Strange movie coming up, too, which they are branding as Marvel's first horror yeah, movie. Talked about mm-hmm. that a little bit. Yeah, that'll be exciting. So it's just exciting in general to see them taking things in a darker direction. Plus with, like, Moon Knight being announced, that ties into, like, Werewolf by Night and shit like yeah, that. Yeah. So we might start seeing a lot more horror influence in, like, the superhero side of shit coming up, so... Well, hell yeah, that looks fun, and I'm excited about that. And I recommend checking out that New Mutants trailer. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I didn't really keep up with any news, mainly because uh, of our green hits, so I'm ready for some American werewolf in London. Yeah, let's get in the guts and bolts of this bitch. Guts and bolts. Alright, Danny. Guts and bolts. American werewolf in London. I mean, this goes a little bit more in the how did it make you squeal, but I think it deserves to be said straight off for this episode. It turns out that I've never seen this entire movie. I had only seen clips, so this is even extra exciting, having finally got to watch it all. But I guess spoiler-free synopsis to start, two young American men stupidly wander out into the moors and get bit by a werewolf. Well, one gets killed. One gets bit by a werewolf and has to deal with the repercussions of that while recuperating in London. It's in the name of the fucking... It's an American werewolf in London. Yeah, exactly. The title alone should give you... The only part that's going to throw you is they start off in Scotland. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So, I like that. It's brief, good synopsis of what you're going to get yourself into. And of course, from week to week, we like to talk about our cast and crew now. Because we have such an extended cast and crew, I'll try to keep it nice and simple to the point with these guys. But this week we are finally going to talk about writer, director, stuntman, editor, producer, John Landis. Well, it's not even the Scottish Moors. It's the North York Moors. Yeah, I mean, technically it was filmed in Wells. and But yeah, it was supposed to be like northern part of England. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so some of this stuff I'll, I'll mention with John Landis, if you didn't already know, he's done such things as the National Lampoon's Animal House, the Blues Brothers. You might have seen his segment in the Twilight Zone, the movie Time Out. I think about the Thriller video. I mean, oh, yeah. Coming, Coming to America, America is yeah, what yeah. I was about to say. He also did the black and white Michael Jackson's uh, music video. He did. Matter if you're yeah. black or white. Beverly Hills Cops 3. I mean... Like I said, if you look at his stuff, it's mostly a mix of comedy and horror, which, a little bit of a spoiler, is kind of what this film is, a little bit of a blend of both, but more more so horror. But uh, another one, too, I thought was kind of interesting, is he directed Burke and Hare. 
Well, the other super interesting thing about Landis is that early in his career in the film industry, he worked in a lot smaller things. He was like a gopher, but he was also like a stunt double Mm -hmm. and like body double and shit. And like got killed by Toshiro Mifune in a movie in uh, Red Sun. Nice, dude. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that that's how he got his start. It was just doing a lot of stunt stuff and eventually worked his way up to gopher, etc. So, yeah. All right, so moving along, I'm going to talk about our, our cinematographer, and that's Robert Painter. Now, a little side note, which is kind of interesting, is he was known for being the DP for a lot of Michael Winner films, which is a British filmmaker, and that's how they met John Landis in Winner and Robert Painter because of the film Chateau's Land. Which, okay. Coincidentally enough, that's where John Landis was doing some stunt work on. <laughs> but uh, he said because of that, he got Robert Painter on board, and some of those films also include what I just mentioned, uh, Chato's Land, but Hannibal Brooks, another Michael Winter film. People are probably more familiar with such things as Superman 2, Superman 3, Trading Places, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Have you ever seen National Lampoon's Euro Vacation? Yeah. Little, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. The live-action sequences of Rockadoodle. Yeah, dude. I mean, there's some really cool <laughs> films in his uh, cinematography. So. With Chanticleer. <laughs> Nice. All right, moving along, we have editor Malcolm Campbell, and he's known for editing such things as Trading Places, Michael Jackson's Thriller, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Nothing But Trouble, one of my favorites, dude, (laughs) Coming to America, Wayne's World, One and Two, the movie Freaked, which I'm a huge fan of. I mean, Nothing But Trouble rides the line. We can almost cover it on this fucking podcast, and it wouldn't be out of place. All right, some others that people might have seen. I'm just going to keep it simple, but uh, if you've ever seen Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, if you've ever seen Hot Sharks Part Do, if you've ever seen Superstar or Keeping the Faith, I mean, even stuff like Shanghai Nights, Scary Movie 3, so a lot of really cool shit. All right, moving along, we have special effects teams, and those teams were effects associates and camera effects. Now, I did have a major player because of his work on this film extensively, and that's Rick Baker. So once we get into the film, I might talk about him a little bit more extensively because he's got a wealth of credits. Just know that this film helped inspire a Michael Jackson's thriller. Right. I had a lot of podcast homework to do this weekend, so there was one interview I didn't get to re-listen to with Rick Baker that I know is rather amazing and where he goes through a lot of the shit that people don't even maybe realize that he did. But I do think it's in keeping with this episode, given him doing a werewolf in this. Well, Rick Baker was responsible for a lot of the alien costume design on Star Wars. Yeah. But... Specifically, I wanted to point out in A New Hope, in the Moss Eisley Cantina, there's that werewolf man. Yeah. That was just like something Rick Baker had sitting in his fucking garage. It's crazy, isn't it? He never thought it would be featured for like five full seconds on screen. It was intended to be something the camera just panned over real quick. Yeah. And so he's kind of embarrassed of that being in there. One thing from the interview that I was able to remember. That's so. pretty cool. But you are right, I mean, <clears throat> with A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. So, yeah, he's got some claim to fame there as well. All right, moving along, we've got producer George Fulsey Jr. Production companies were Polygram Pictures, The Goober Peters Company, Lycanthrope Films, American Werewolf, which is the copyright holder of this film. The distributor was Universal Pictures for the 1981 United States theatrical release. 
and Barber International was for the 1981 United Kingdom theatrical release. The release date here in the States was August 21st, 1981, and November 8th, 1981 in the United Kingdom during the London Film Festival. The estimated budget was about six to ten million dollars. It grossed roughly 62 million dollars worldwide. It has several taglines, but the one I thought was fitting is also a quote in the film, a line I should say, is Beware the Moon. I like that one. Beware the Moon. It's pretty fucking good. Yeah, because the other one had to do with John Landis' credits, like, from the director of Animal House brings you, you know, it's like, <laughs> get out of here, man. All right, so moving along, I'll talk about our cast, and we'll lead off with David Naughton, who plays the character of David Kessler, one of the two Americans. He's been in such films as Midnight Madness, Hot Dog the Movie, Amityville, A New Generation. We've actually talked about him because of our episode, Ice Cream Man. <laughs> it's like, holy shit. He was also in the film Big Bad Wolf, and more recently he was in Sharknado Part 5. I feel like I'd be remiss in my role as one of the generals on General Nerdery if I didn't point out that he's also the voice of Mr. Fantastic in Marvel's Ultimate Alliance from 2006. Nice, dude. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving along, we have Jenny Ugeter. She plays the role of Nurse Alex Price. Some people might be familiar with her works in such films as Logan's Run. She was in the film The Eagle Has Landed, the film Equus. She was also in Child's Play Part Two. You might have seen her in Dark Man, where she was an uncredited role. She was also in Burke and Hare, and more recently, she was a part of The Avengers, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which is really cool. She's remained rather popular throughout her entire career to the point that she is one of these people that whenever we need to do Doctor Who, the Doctor. Yeah. I realize the character's name isn't Doctor Who. Her name is thrown out quite a bit. That's pretty cool, eh? Yeah. Nice. All right, to move along, we have actor Griffin Dunn. He plays the role of Jack Goodman in the film. He's the other American alongside Debbie Kessler. Now, he's been in such things as the film The Fan. You might have seen him in the film After Hours. Also the film Johnny Dangerously, which is a pretty decent film, man. He was in Who's That Girl? We've probably seen him because he was in the film My Girl. He was also in the films Quiz Show, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Stuck on You. And more recently, he was in Dallas Buyers Club and Ocean's 8. All right, we have John Woodvine. He plays the role of Dr. J.S. Hirsch in the film. He's been in some pretty interesting things. He goes back. He was in Ken Russell's The Devils. He was in Leon the Pig Farmer. Some people might know him as Marshall from Doctor Who, television series in 1979. He was also in the films Miss Potter and Burke and Hare. All right, next actor I have is Don McKillop, who plays Inspector Villiers. He was also a part of Doctor Who, which was The Damons, uh, 1971, I guess, was like part of the eighth season uh, finale. The, uh, yeah, it was the final serial of the eighth season. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, he was Bert the Landlord. <laughs> Bert. <laughs> he was also a part of the Lucky Lads television series from 64 through 66 and the film Walter, 1982. All right, moving along, we have Brian Glover. He plays the chess player. He's the one who tells the story about remembering the Alamo. Now, he's been in such films as Brannigan. You might have seen him in the Monty Python's Jabberwocky. He was also a part of The Company of Wolves. He was in Doctor Who in 1985's television series. You might have also seen him in Alien 3, and he was also in Snow White, A Tale of Terror. All right, moving along, we have The Dart Player, played by David Schofield. He's been in some pretty interesting films. Uh, he might be the most accomplished actor 
on this fucking set. Yeah, arguably. Some films include The Last of the Mohicans, the film Gladiator, From Hell, he's been in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest Inn at World's End. More recently, he was in Valkyrie, The Wolfman, and Birkenhair. And he's a pretty well-accomplished stage actor as well, as as much as these people are. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I looked at a couple of his theater credits, and it's shit like Joseph Merrick in The Elephant Man for the Royal National Theater at London. Yeah, like, like a lot of the these Elephant people are, Man <laughs> in The well. Elephant Man. You know a lot what of I mean? these people are super accomplished in theater. John Proctor in The Crucible. Damn. Like McHeath in The Beggar's Opera. Shit like that. Roy Cohn in Angels in America. It's crazy, dude. That's awesome, though. It, it just shows the talent. All right, moving along, we have Lila Kay. She plays the role of the barmaid. Now, she's been in such things as David Copperfield. That was a television series in 1966. She was in the 1970s, The Black Panther. She was also in The Invisible Man television series in 1984. And she was in the comedy Nuns on the Run, which is actually a pretty funny film. I've seen that a while back. One actor who was in it briefly, but we do have to mention him. If you're about to say who I think you're about to say, I just about shit myself when I saw that he was in this. I like his spit take on it. (laughs) But yes, I am talking about Rick Mayall. He plays the second chess player. Now, I think more famously, at least for our generation, we probably know him because of Drop Dead Fred. Now, there's some other people, uh, because of MTV, we're exposed to... By the way, Team Fred, we're Fredheads here. (laughs) Oh yeah, I fucking love Drop Dead Fred. (laughs) Yeah, Team Fred. For sure. For sure. 100%. Now, because of MTV, a lot of people were exposed to the Young Ones television series from 82 through 84. He was also in the sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Shock Treatment. Oh, yep. And he was also in the television series Bottom from 1991 through 95. Now, he's also been in a lot of other things, but more so because of his characters that he created. Yeah. I'm a giant Black Adder fan, and he has an immensely memorable recurring role throughout the Black Adder series is Lord Flashheart. And I think it's Lord Flashheart's descendant. Is that who it is in World War One? It's Rick Mayall, and it's obviously modeled off his Lord Flashheart character. That's awesome, so, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite lines in the entire series where she's got a tongue like an electric eel and loves the taste of a man's tonsils. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> Pretty risque. <laughs> I like it, though. All right, so the next actor I have, which... You might not recognize his face, but I was certainly sure a lot of people recognize the voice. I'm talking about Frank Oz, who plays the role of Mr. Collins in this. Now, (laughs) if you want to talk about a familiar voice, you can name numerous characters that he voiced in The Muppet Show. I mean, he did Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Animal, and Sam Eagle, Cookie Monster, Bert, and Grover in Sesame Street. More famously, I think Yoda (laughs) in the Star Wars franchise. Because he's a director as well, a Little Shop of Horrors, which I really like that film a lot, Dirty Rotten Scandrels, What About Bob, <laughs> Bowfinger, The Score, Death at a Funeral, just a legendary voice actor, director. It's kind of neat to see him in this role as well, so it was really cool seeing that. Next actor I have is Sidney Bromley, who plays the role of Alf, which is one of the three homeless guys in this film. Okay. The reason I bring him up is because he's been in such films as The Fearless Vampire Killers, he was also in Jabberwocky, which is really awesome. He was also in The Never-Ending Story, and he also played... Yeah, he's Engiwook. Yeah, and he was also in Dragon Slayer, like back in the 19... Was it 81, I think it was? All right, next actor I have is Michael Carter. He plays the role of Gerald Bringsley. He's been in such things as Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. He was in the film The Keep, 
and more recently in the film The Illusionist. Gerald Bringsley. He was a tube guy, the underground tube guy. Holy shit. That's Bib Fortuna in Star Wars? Yeah, that's him. That's pretty crazy. That's fucking nutters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the next actor I have is Albert Moses. He plays the hospital porter gentleman in this film. He's been in such things as The Man Who Would Be King. You might have seen him in The Spy Who Killed Me. He was in Pink Floyd's The Wall movie. He was also in Octopussy. He was also a part of the television series Mind Your Language from 1976 through 1986. And The Benny Hill Show in 1989. And the last person I actually have credited, I mean, there's a lot more people in this film, but I think big actors is Alan Ford, who makes an appearance as the taxi driver in this film. And Alan Ford, I know we've mentioned before, because of Cockneys vs. Zombies, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. He was in Snatch. Just like a lot of British films. I think he's probably famously known because of his Cockney accent and mm-hmm. just a really interesting mafia kind of like guy, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, yeah, it was cool. I was like, I had to look it up just to make sure it was him, sure enough. And... To pertain more to this podcast, Exorcist the Beginning. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so uh, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You did give us a brief synopsis. We should give you some warnings in this film. Language. Nudity. Nudity. Gore. There is a little, yeah, some surprisingly like some good gore. I was very surprised at how good the gore actually is in this movie. Yeah. It, we'll get into it more. I had seen parts of this movie before, including some of the violence, <laughs> but it's still something else to see it all in front of you once again. And especially when you're trying to evaluate it to be like, should I warn people about this? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I should, because there's some good gore in this movie. There really is. <laughs> now, I do have to side note, too, because of the nudity, you're also going to get, like, sexually... I won't say... They're not explicit, but you'll get some sexual situations in this film, too. Mm-hmm. Some people not might not be comfortable, but... They're not, like, super extensive either. Slightly dirty jokes, but not as dirty as they could be. True. Very true. So you're going to have a little raunch, but that's to be expected from John Landis. I was about to say, it's if you've seen a John Landis movie, you kind of know the humor you're coming yeah, in for. Yeah, exactly. I would hope so at this point. In fact, if anything, this is probably one of... This is a really funny movie. It's less funny than most of his other movies. I totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. Fuck, let's just get into talking about it. Yeah. How does that make you squeal? Alright, so American Werewolf in London, as I already said, turns out I'd never seen all this movie. There was one specific scene that let me know that I had never seen all this movie before, but we'll get to that. What's your history with this movie? Alright, so I can't tell you exactly when I first seen this film, but I became more familiar with it. I want to say like, in the 2000s, roughly, more so or less the later 2000s, not so much mid to early when I was collecting. And then more recently, because of a Facebook group, I want to give them a shout out, the uh, Slaughtered Lamb. Oh, yeah, I meant to actually shout them out at the very top of this episode. Like, I don't know, disclaimer? It's a weird disclaimer to make, but considering this movie, like, we are both members of a Facebook group called the fucking Slaughtered Lamb. Yeah, and so it's nice <laughs> to see, like, they used to have Werewolf Wednesdays and, like, Fuck It Fridays and uh, just, you know, posting, like, random quotes and shit like that from this film. So I became a lot more acquainted with this film because of them. So I do have a, give a pretty big shout-out to that. But more recently, I've bought two different versions of this film. One still book, one box set. So Damn. Yeah, I, I really enjoy this film. 
So I don't want to say anything too definitive yet, especially because I intend for us to also cover the other film I'm about to mention sometime this year. But they both came out the same year. I'd say they're both in the running. What's better, this or The Howling? I think that's a good what's question. The, what's the best werewolf movie of all time? This, Ooh. The Howling, or The Wolfman? Not the 2010 Wolfman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's basically those three. I think I, I want to reserve to say what I think until we get to the, at least one more of the films. Okay. Yeah. So, and because I don't have, want to be too biased right now. We have Dog Soldiers art on the wall. Oh, yeah. But those three movies, as far as werewolf movies go, oh yeah. Are if it weren't for those films, it, yeah, we wouldn't have dog soldiers if it wasn't for them. So, you know, of course, it's very subjective. I do have an opinion about it, but I'm going to reserve it until at least one of the two you just mentioned, whether it's the Howling or the Wolfman. First, uh, we'll. Uh, You're going to say Silver Bullet, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> No, not quite. <laughs> I, even though I like that film a lot, I'm not. No, I'm not willing to put my claim to fame on that one. No, thank you. There's no discredit to the film, but no, there's better. All right, so I will say I hadn't seen it before. I have seen, I think, most of the movie in clips, and especially a lot of the big moments because they get played ad nauseum on like best of horror movies. Oh yeah, types compilations. You know. Yeah, what I this mean? film is always going to be in that top list. So, like, I've seen the transformation a hundred fucking times. That part wasn't new to me. What was new was filling in some of the other shit. And the movie immediately had my heart by opening on fucking Blue Moon. Yeah, which is really neat. So, whether people know this or not, but the entire soundtrack in this film has the word moon in it, which is really cool. And there was two artists who refused, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but, you Who know, refused? Bob Dylan. And Cat Stevens. So what songs are the? It would have been... I can't remember the exact titles of both of those songs. I don't know enough Dylan. Yeah, I'm not a huge Dylan fan. Cat Stevens, I like some of his music, but that's when he converted oh, yeah. to Islam. And he was like, yeah, he's like, I can't let you use it because he felt like the film was too violent. And I believe Bob Dylan refused because he felt like it goes against his belief system. So oh, like, okay. All right, whatever. But uh, regardless, still killer soundtrack and you're right leads off with bobby venton's blue moon so there's three different versions of this song played in the film right and the opening one i think is my favorite the bobby venton yeah i like that one a lot too it, it kind of has a almost a classic feel to it mm -hmm. you know from that which is interesting is you get a you know a ride through the countryside etc into the scene where the kids are literally at the crossroads so i think this movie's overall really fucking genius but there's like three or four points in the beginning of this movie where like this movie doesn't happen without them being just idiots. Oh yeah, no doubt. First off, and I know this is all but impossible to truly do, but <laughs> set aside the fact that we're both members of the Slaughtered Lamb, you're off hitchhiking in a different country. Is the pub that you choose to go to the one truly named the Slaughtered Lamb? Yeah, I know what, I know what you're saying. So... <laughs> I totally get where Jack comes from when they do. He's like, seriously? <laughs> He's like, would you prefer the Hilton? I was like, well, if they had one, perhaps. But you're right. I mean, the whole thing is a setup from All right, the get-go. So, slaughtered lamb without knowing what it is. Right. Or Trump Hotel Bar. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Slaughtered lamb. 
Oh, every day, every night. You know, I will say this, though. I do prefer, like, holes in the walls as opposed mm-hmm. to, like, you know, bigger-themed bars, pubs, whatever. So, yeah, I'd be more inclined probably to sit in, get a, an English ale. Ooh, that'd, be kind of, jokes. that'd still be sketch, though. <laughs> oh, fuck it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd probably well, I go, I'd go into the slaughtered lamb, but... Like, oh, shit. At the same time, I'd be like... I hope I'm not going to end up getting killed tonight. Right, which... right. I was like, always keep your back to the wall if you're going to be in that place. Yeah. Understandable. But I do want to mention, though, like, before we even get to that, is they're riding in the back of a truck with lamb, sheep. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is, come on. <laughs> it's a punch on the nose already. But you're right. Once they are in, I like it because it shows that they're outsiders coming in as well. Which I don't want to give away too early, but there is a huge allegory in this film because of Landis's background and because of the characters in this film. So I'll reserve that the more we get into this film. So anyway, there's a huge allegory. Like I said, there are outsiders coming into a place that they really don't belong. People don't really want them in there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the lady offers them service, meaning tea. <laughs> or, or if you want, you know, they've got ale, got nothing to eat. But the whole point is, is they're observing, making mentions of the the star on the wall and the fact that, you know, it's the slaughtered lamb, et cetera, et cetera. He's also going on to think about, like, the fact that they could be in Rome. But some of my early notes is I do like to remember the Alamo, even though that's kind of like now it's a little bit non-PC, <laughs> you know, but it's still funny. It's better when it's not an American telling it. Absolutely. And John Landis even mentioned the guy who, who does that whole spiel, mm-hmm. he's like, he liked it because of that guy's accent. It made it more kind of authentic to that area and the storytelling itself. So, yeah, just made it like a little bit more over the top. <laughs> after they kick the guys out, after having watched Calvair, <laughs> I did have to sort of laugh to myself a bit, wondering what it would have been like if they would have decided to communicate through a dance. <laughs> That would have, oh, like a, a mash of those two? That would have yeah. been so fucking hard. If they would they have been trying out. to figure out whether whether it was okay of them to fucking yeah. send them out there or not. That's so Mostly funny. the barmaid fucking shaming them all. Like, yeah. the fuck are you guys doing? You know what's going to happen out there. Yeah, oh, well, I think we'd be remiss if we don't mention this too. But I think one of the probably, as far as like those, if you've only seen this movie in clips, it mm-hmm. has to be that dark player too. Is a you made me miss... I've never missed that board. <laughs> Which I just had fucking Colin Farrell as Pain. Bullseye and Daredevil flashbacks. <laughs> you made me miss. <laughs> but the, the whole point is because Jack is pointing out, I was like, you know, how, what is that star on the wall? And even prior to that, which is neat, this film does this a lot. John Lannis does this a lot in this film as reference the 1941 The Wolfman. Because he's like, oh yeah, that's the star. It's a pentangle. It's, uh, it's the sign of the Wolfman. Right, yeah, yeah. And he, he goes into the spiel is like, you know, basically explaining the film. <laughs> but you're right, once they get kicked out, they do warn them. You know, he's like, you know, stay on the road, keep clear of the moors, beware of the moon, lads. And that's the second time in an hour that they've been told to stay off the moors. What do they immediately go fucking do? Fuck, they go fucking off <laughs> singing St. <Saint> Lucia. <laughs> Onto the moors. <laughs> They start on the road for about 100 foot. Right, until it starts raining. And then once they do get off onto the moors, it cues back into the pub. And, you know, they're like, you shouldn't have let those boys out. And then they hear the wolf howls. And she's like, we got to go back out there. He's like, 
I heard nothing. <laughs> he heard again, nor I. Like, these fucking guys. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice when they were shooting those guys out on the moors. Like, they used, like, 200 square foot of space with the way that they were shooting them. Yeah. They might have been out in a giant open field. Maybe they were making right, full use of their location. But with what they were doing, with it being just, like, illuminated just around them and then going to That's dark like 15 feet off and it framing only so much and you're not really seeing out into the distance you're kind of up above them a little bit so it's all framed right. in by it's, land it's and shit just, yeah exactly you could have done that on the same literally the same like 20 square foot of land and just like circled the camera oh, around them from different yeah. angles yeah exactly Which and that's makes sense. and like that's no discredit to them i just thought i was like what the are they okay cool like this it's working though like i liked what they did there like it 100 percent worked it did remind me a little bit more of like the theater okay, with yeah. the way that they were kind of like looking and it's circling us but you don't get to see anything <laughs> but i liked the way that that built up the tension until we finally get to see the werewolf even if i already knew what the fucking werewolf looked like it's still good tension building yeah and i think the thing that really sets the tone from that point forward is the attack you know jack gets killed Dude, jack gets fucked like, up yeah he gets really fucked up and the thing I, I do appreciate about this film too is the fact that it, they kept it realistic like that's probably the real reaction somebody would have if you got attacked regardless if it was a werewolf or not but you know getting fucked out yeah i mean <laughs> he turns around his buddy is fucked and then he starts to get a little bit of it yeah and then the militia shows up <laughs> a little too late However, with how easily the militia took down the werewolf, it did make me wonder how they hadn't just took care of it before. Yeah, I know what you mean. Which is interesting because you know that's been going on for a while there. But that's all you know. You don't get anything else. I'll you have that. to imagine it's because they're like, well, it's Bob down the street. I'm leaning toward it's like, it's probably one of their own. They're trying to protect them. As we long just... as he's not getting people. Yeah. And he's probably just off there getting, like, sheep and shit. Yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. It's like, if you can keep him isolated, then so be it. You know, it's just a curse and we can't kill our own, but... But then as soon as they get somebody, it's like, oh, you're going to bring a that's... whole heap of trouble down on us. Oh, Fuck you, no, Bob. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, exactly. We got too much heat. But that's kind of what I'm getting at, too, is, like, there's some really interesting things when you do a little bit of research... Just beyond this film, mm -hmm. like with lycanthropy and more or less like the clinical case of lycanthropy where people actually think, you know, they have delusions that they are turning into a werewolf and they exhibit the behavior. You can read a little bit into that in this film. You know, you could look at it as like just psychosis and people thinking that's what they are. I don't tend to read into it that way. No. But then there's also like the mythology. And if you follow the German route of the pagan wolf and whatnot it tends to read a little bit more i think makes sense in, in that realm because they were more or less looked as protectors like for people in that region and any outsider that was trying to invade or attack they would take care of them and you can kind of look at it like that with this film you know the outsiders came in they got attacked and mm -hmm. that's what they do <laughs> you know now they're cursed i didn't want to get into it quite yet but it sort of ties into what you were saying but in the back of my mind, especially the second time through watching this movie when I was taking my notes, I was like, first off, I was realizing how few good werewolf movies there are. Good point, yeah. But then, and this idea is free just because I want to get it, see it get made, so somebody please steal this idea and make this fucking movie. But 
it'd be really easy to remake this movie as a straight up horror werewolf movie by just really playing into that middle section where instead of him joking around like, ah, I think I'm going crazy. Yeah, yeah. And sort of almost like pulling at his fucking collar like Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he's fucking half doing that. Like, I think I'm nuts. Yeah, I mean, it's a little schlocky, but yeah. I mean, I fucking dig it, but... But no, I mean, I mean exactly. I know what you're saying. But really play into like, am I going crazy? Am I turning into something? Am I not turning into something? Yeah, you can Even if I'm not turning into something, am I still going around and hurting people? Like, yeah, exactly. Am I having these episodes? I can't recollect. That's what I'm getting at. It's like, you could lean into it a little bit more in that direction. It's there, but they don't really play into right, it in the movie. Right. Exactly. It's they have the foundation for that stuff and they toy with it. They do it's more to him be like, oh, I think I'm going nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Come help me, Doc. Precisely. <laughs> Alright, so after David gets saved, quote unquote, we learn that he's in London. He's been there for three weeks. His parents know, which it's like, man, his parents are kind of shitty. <laughs> think about it. Alright. But one of the, this is not my quote, but it does stand out as kind of an innocuous quote or line is when the two nurses are discussing David. He's like, yeah, it shows that he's American. He's from New York. And she's like, well, I think he's Jewish. I took a look. (laughs) Yeah. And now, all right, because I'm like, there's that allegory I'm talking about here. This is an interesting thing. It's like, why would they even use that line? Why? It's kind of, if you don't look or read into it, it's kind of a throwaway line, right? Just like whatever, he's Jewish, he's, you know, she knows because she saw, <laughs> right? But because of the fact that John Landis is Jewish and mm-hmm. there's a lot of like symbolism that goes back to, to Germany and stuff like that, I think it makes this film a little bit more interesting because of some of the choices he uses and dream sequences and shit like that. So just put a little pin there because I think it's going to play out much larger as this film progresses. Oh, that is very quickly followed up by a line I had to write down, which is the Nurse Gallagher surely performs some function here at the hospital. <laughs> he does throw some shade at her, doesn't he? He stops her. Well, then why don't you go do it? Yeah. See ya. All right. You're right. Kind of right away. It's weird because, you know, he's coming out and he's having somewhat of these dream states. And uh, they bring in Frank Oz. and And it's like... It's so over the top, but that's kind of what this film is in a sense. It's like a lot of the humor tends to be there like, like you were saying, like, Ugh. but I like it because it shows that chaos too. It's like mm-hmm. he's going through a trauma. This guy's like, these kids and their behavior and what, relax. <laughs> yeah. like, what There's no need about? for hysterics. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you talking about, man? Yeah. So you get that kind of played out. What it really amounts to is the fact that he starts having those dreams and he goes to those dream states. So one of the first ones is just him in the woods, essentially, like a first-person view of him running through the woods. The second one is the fact that he is running now. He's naked, and he kills and eats a deer, like rips it apart. And then the the third one, this is after he has the meal when she's feeding him, is... uh, Which that was... That was a dream within the dream. That was adorable fucking chemistry between those two in that scene. I will say, if they weren't dating, they should have been, because there was some good chemistry there. That was some good fucking chemistry in that scene. That was palpable on screen. And I was like... I was looking at her, I'm like, you fucking sly dog. (laughs) I know, right? She's good. I give... I mean, hello, nurse. (laughs) 
All right, so during that third one, what he said, and this is Landis saying, is that he was influenced by uh, Luis Buñuel, who worked with Salvador Dali in a lot of surrealistic things from the 30s. But I think he said it was more of a film in the 70s because the film essentially is like this group of people having dinner and they're all having dreams, you know, and they all share mm. their dreams and are interconnected. Anyway, he said that's why he chose to use that, the dream within a dream. But... This is where it takes more of that turn, which is really cool. Is, well, this is where I realized I had never seen this entire movie. Yeah. Which he sees himself in bed in the woods and the nurse mm-hmm. is attending to him. And then he flashes the eyes and the, you know, the normal Yeah, the holy fucking thriller. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh shit. But he he'd mentioned like that was probably the most painful sequence to shoot because those contact lenses were glass. Mm. So, you know, that probably would suck. But anyway... It gets a little bit more progressive because the fourth dream that he has involves his family. Oh, the fourth dream is the one where I realized I had never seen this whole movie because I would have never forgotten that scene. I think upon first glance, you know, seeing that particular bit, you're like, what the what the fuck? Like Nazi werewolves coming in and slaughtering his family? There's no way in the world I ever would have forgotten Nazi werewolves. Right. All right. And so, that's where I was like, oh, I've never seen this entire movie. Well, this actually, the fourth dream is the dream within the dream. But, oh, okay. But regardless. Well, Nazi uh, werewolves is. Right, the yeah, Nazi yeah. werewolves. But like I said, upon first glance, if you don't know a little bit of his background, like I said, Landis, you could just look at it as like an opportunity to do something over the top, <laughs> like Nazi werewolves. This is where I was getting at with the fact that he is Jewish and he chose to use that Nazi werewolves. This is where it kind of gets into like this tangent a little bit, but I'll briefly mention it. It all has to do with the fact that in Nazi Germany, specifically with the thing that led into it, was there was this journalist who wrote Der Werwolf. And because of its popularity, it was essentially a book about this village that was being overtaken during the Thirty Years' War in Germany. And they decided to form kind of like a wolf pack do like guerrilla warfare and essentially they overtook the invaders right it was so well received that there was a racist paramilitary group that named themselves the werewolf that had key members from the nazi party that later adapted a lot of those principles long story short if you look into adolf hitler he referred to himself as the wolf because his name translates to noble wolf. Yep. <laughs> just fucked up. He called his lair the wolf's lair. They referred to themselves as wolf packs, etc., etc. Joseph Goebbels, his propaganda radio station was called Radio Werewolf, I think it was called. <laughs> right? So it's kind of interesting that they use these motifs because of the ideology of like sticking together in packs, right? So that's why it makes sense that you see these werewolf Nazis coming in mowing his family down. I was like, that's kind of interesting because that gets really deep. Are you telling me the Helsing Ultimate had it wrong and that Nazis weren't vampires, they were werewolves? They were werewolves, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess they had the one werewolf. Yeah. And he was a badass. Right. But the, I was like, man, like I said, unless you really know a little bit about this, you can just look at it as amusement. Like, this is fucking crazy over the top, right? But there's signs in it too because on the mantelpiece you see the menorahs in the background and the fact that his last name's Kessler and his best friend's name Goodman. So they're using, you know, Jewish protagonists, which is interesting. And honestly, we can kind of just take it from the Nazi werewolves because not much happens there in the middle other than the doctor getting yeah, I mean, more curious <laughs> and the two leads hooking up. Right. But there is one other line I wanted to fucking point out from yeah, that yeah, middle part. Sure. 
and I fucking lost it with a, tell him I passed away from an old war wound. <laughs> tell him I'm fucking dead. <laughs> Just oh, that was awesome. I did overall, and I mean, it's not exclusive to this movie, I'm sure. I just can't pull any other ideas or examples off the top of my head, but I kind of loved the idea, and it was in limited scope, but the movie almost slightly seemed to imply that now that he's a werewolf, he's kind of just part of this supernatural world. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is it's interesting. It's like, so because this film, I think, plays a little bit more into that, you know, like playing to the fact that he is a werewolf, you know, but like I said, modern day in London. I like that because you finally get to see a, like a real transformation too in a film with werewolves mm-hmm. as opposed to like just film lapses essentially. Oh yeah. You know, you got to see, yeah, the stretching hands and all yeah, that Yeah, which shit. is really cool. So with Rick Baker, he mentioned like how he did that. He said they used these certain devices, they called changeos, mm-hmm. which you could extend, you know, whether you're using hands, arms, legs, et cetera, et cetera. He said the only difference is the material they use. Instead of using like a certain plastic, they use more of a urethane. He said, but the more they use it, it kind of dissolved. But they did it in a way where they got everything filmed. But he said he was thinking of like certain things, how to do, you know, just things practically to make them look believable. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember using it on this film. And so why not? He's like, it gives us a chance to stretch them out and make it look believable. So yeah, I guess obviously like he was only a werewolf for like not much. Yeah, not very not long. Not much time. Not very long. I mean, I, I guess the point I was getting at with him feeling like it was in a supernatural yeah, world yeah, now yeah. was like, obviously, like, Jack has a connection to him, so it kind of makes sense that he would show up as a ghost, and same with his victims and stuff, yeah, but the movie just made it feel organic enough to me that it kind of felt like if he would have stayed alive longer as a werewolf, he could potentially just run into other ghosts, too. Yeah, perhaps. Because now that he's a werewolf, he's just part of this... By the way, supernatural shit happens. You know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah. it's like, because I don't think they were just like, do you think it was just like the ghosts were like real ghosts or like guilt? That's what I'm getting at. It's like you can. Because I think it was real it. ghosts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can read into it from the supernatural bent where like, yeah, this is his victims because they died unnatural deaths and they're in that limbo state like Jack. They're just in different forms of decay, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know? Or you could look at it like you were saying as more of a. Um, like a clinical sense, like lycanthropy, where he's delusional and it's his guilt eating at him, mm-hmm. you know? But if that's the case, then how would he know who those people were unless he read about it or saw it on the news? Or Because the way it plays out is he says he doesn't remember anything. He just woke up. <laughs> yeah, see, I I just read it as ghosts and it just Makes felt sense. completely in place in the movie to me. And I'm Absolutely. like, if he would have found a way just to live as a werewolf... Maybe he'd run into more ghosts. Maybe he'd run that... into like a vampire or something just because now he's part of that world. Yeah, you know a, what yeah. I mean? I mean yeah, absolutely. You can definitely play with that. Yeah. I, I just wanted to point out the soundtrack again, too. I just want, I fucking love Moondance. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, with Van Morrison, you get the different like versions of Blue Moon, which is really cool. I do like kind of like the lead up to into his transformation the first time through, which is, it is really cool. It's just something, it's just super simple, but. You know, just like he's carrying out the time. He kind of knows or has a feeling like something could happen. I don't know. And then it does happen. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, but then he goes on that killing spree, which is I think is really cool, too. I like that segment of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, because it does kind of bring home the point, like, 
Yeah, there's, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, he's, this shit's really happening. It's pretty gruesome. It's good. I like the, the fact, too, that the couple that are going to a dinner party, apparently, the guy who finds his friends... You know, he's like, is this a brain or whatever? <laughs> and then steps in the muck. You're like, oh, that's pretty gnarly, dude. Yeah. I, I thought that, that was, was really good. That was fucking good. Yeah. yeah he likes it all into the point where he wakes up in that wolf's den at the zoo. That whole little comic bit plays out with the kid in the balloons, which is funny. It's kind of, <laughs> it's weird. It might not be held in a certain esteem now, but all of that's comedic. Him, I think they said that he improvised like running and still in the jacket and uh-huh. the coat and put it on himself. And the woman that he ran into when he's naked, apparently she was aware that a man was going to run into her, but she didn't know he was going to be nude. So a lot of these reactions are authentic reactions. That's funny. Because Landis was omitting a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do like a lot of that shit. When I saw that, I was like, shit, it'd be really obscure. There'd be not that many people that got it right off. But that'd be a really good Halloween costume for someone. Someone could and a really easy one to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, if I you mean... already kind of looked like the chap, like you could. Backing up just a little bit, when the doctor went up and tried to investigate shit. Oh yeah, yeah, good point, good point. I mean, it's all shit that we already know. Is you know what I mean? That's all he uncovers, and so he knows to be more on the lookout for like, oh shit, he might actually be changing. I don't wonder this in the sense that like I wish they would have put it in the movie because it doesn't belong in the movie. But I do kind of wonder how the dynamics of that small town changed up after dude started spilling the beans and got caught by the other guy oh yeah (laughs) why'd you spill your beans (laughs) no but i think that's another line too that's if you know this film that one gets thrown out a lot because he does he's like that's enough (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like yeah you're what the fuck are you doing but you can't fault the guy either you know yeah he's like no dude we fucked up yeah and now people might die he's in london no shit (laughs) and once they saw he was fucking bit and shit why did they just clean his wounds and send him go instead of putting a bullet in his head like <sighs> these two teamed up and attacked the other guy we don't know what happened <laughs> i know they had an alibi for everything else or at least a story except for him like send him down to london fuck that <laughs> fucking holy i couldn't fucking believe the weird darkness but hilarity of the benjamin have you ever been severely beaten about the face and neck <laughs> <laughs> Because the kid, he just does the... No- I mean, he's a cute kid, of course. and No. No. Uh, no. If, if you don't pay attention, during that first time that she's attending to him, there's a kid that, like, nabs a magazine and slaps That's her ass. ass. <laughs> like, wow, okay. All right. I'm like, I get it, kid, but, but no, you're right, there we is don't that do that. one little segment where she is. She tells him that just bluntly. You're like... <laughs> no. no. That's what I thought. <laughs> And she plays a game of uh, copycat with him, too. She does the no with him mm-hmm. as well. So a lot of that, it's, I think it's like those endearing moments, but then it leads up to him transforming again. And, you know, I think it's a way to like kind of settle the chaos a little bit. Do you think the change is always that intense and fucked up? Or do you think if he would have been a werewolf for longer, he just would have like gotten better at doing it? Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think so. Because... Not or is that just part of the part of it? Like, it's nope. always painful. It just sucks. Damn, that would but suck. it doesn't seem like he remembers the pain. No, exactly. It's just, uh, I guess, in the moment, it's painful. But after, it's like, I you don't seem to have it. no memory of it anyway. So, so yeah, was it sucks it really for a bad? second. Yeah, well, yeah. Was it really that bad? <laughs> I don't know. But I'm like, if you don't remember. <laughs> I also just wonder, like, maybe he gets better at it. 
yeah. mean, obviously he doesn't because he gets shot fucked to death. But right, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, that happens. But I do like which is it's weird to say, but like the porno theater scene is really cool because you're right. He gets introduced to all his victims. John Landis said the reason he chose to shoot in something like that. Said the first time that he was in London back in the '60s, is that a lot of those theaters would show cartoons, mm. right? They were set up for kids essentially, so it was a way for parents to drop their kids off to go watch cartoons while they went shopping. <laughs> yeah, so he said he remembered that, but when he came back in 1988 and '81, they they were porno theaters. So long story short, the film within the film, the porno that's playing, that I'll was see you next Wednesday. Yeah. That's actually kind of like our For the Right Price or Jafar. Right. That's John Landis's Jafar, if you will, right? He said he uses that in like almost every one of his films, that line. Mm. But that was the first segment that he shot. So that's not a real porno. He just like, he knew they were playing pornos in those theaters and he didn't want to buy one. So he's like, fuck it, I'll just film it. A little side trivia is the busty actress (laughs) in the film within the film. Apparently she was a partner of Steve Perry for a long time. They have a couple oh, kids okay. together. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat little trivia there. But anyway, that was actually the first sequence in the entire film that was shot too, by the way, for those who care. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But you're right. The second transformation it doesn't seem like it was as intense, which is funny because I guess the guys in the theater were like, fuck it, he's just aggressively jerking it back there. <laughs> <laughs> Dude's going to town. Yeah, and the other guy was checking. I was like, you all right, bro? Without really saying it. He's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> oh, fuck. Dude, the ghosts were all hilarious, too. Just they were. Because, like, just kill yourself. Drown yourself. Good. Yeah. He's not my friend. <laughs> Jump in front of a tube. <laughs> what does that guy says? He's He was like a victim of his lunar, uh, cannabis lunar activities. <laughs> I was like, um, that's such a British saying. But the thing I like, too, is this is one of the few films that actually get, like, a chance to film in Piccadilly Circus. Mm. Apparently, like, the line producer, this is what Lana said. He said he was trying to, you know, choose people who could get him permits and shit in London. And there's a lot of people like, we can't do that. He's like, all right, next. Until he came across her. And she never brought it up. And then he was like, you know, do you think we'll be able to do it? She's like, well, we'll see what we can do. And that's how she got the job. But anyway, one of the only films they get to shoot in there, and they shot it, I think, just a, a few nights between, like, two and four o'clock in the morning. But a lot of the people that were coming in on the set didn't know a lot of that shit was really happening. Like when he finally breaks out of the theater, the people mm-hmm. who were the extras apparently really thought that was going on. It was just kind of neat. The wolf looks awesome. Like Rick Baker is a fucking genius. I'm really glad there are so few shots of the wolf moving in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks kind of funny. Yeah, well, they did have a. Great. They had a little bit of a disagreement about whether it should be on all fours or bipedal, you know? Yeah, or an upright. Exactly. And Landis wanted it to be more like a wolf as okay. opposed to, you know, like a hybrid human. Mm-hmm. So he's like, nah. And so with Baker, he said he he was thinking about those movements and how to pull it off. And he's like, oh, just thought about like wheelbarrowing, like either doing it by holding a person up or actually moving them with a wheelbarrow. So. That's how they made those movements, essentially. Not yeah, the you can kind of tell. <laughs> not the greatest. Uh, I mean, but there's not many shots where you actually right, see and, that and much. And it's of very it. minimal, and that's okay. You know, it gives you the impression. Mm-hmm. Right, but it does. It leads up to the point where a line earlier in the film comes to fruition. Right, it's 
the only way that you can care about a werewolf or a werewolf dies by somebody who loves them. Like, that's the person who has to kill them. And it kind of plays out that because, you know, he tells her that he loves her. And then later on, she's like, I love you, David. Let me help you. And yeah, he gets blasted. <laughs> fucking hell of some fucking shots around her. I was thinking that too. Like, damn, they there was a marksman. Them boys weren't playing. I didn't see anybody with a rifle either. Those were handguns from that far away boys with her playing. in the way. Yeah. I don't believe it, but <laughs> but for the sake of the film, I was like, yeah, them boys had some... They were strapped. They were ready. <laughs> There's one last thing from about five minutes before that that was the thing that made me laugh the hardest in this entire movie, and it was so simple, but it was so well executed, and it was the door being shut on the second detective when they went to leave. Yeah. <laughs> There's some really Because it had, stuff not there. only did it like shut, like it had shut like three seconds before and he was stupid enough to just sit there and repeat what the other guy had said because he always has to talk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then no, he turns and i just i fucking lost it it was so good <laughs> no there are some scenes with that guy which is, i think mm-hmm. you're right it does lend its hand more to the comedic side of, of john landis which i like man he throws that in there all right, so that pretty much concludes the film, right? It, was, is this film as like nobody ever talks about it the same way they do say something like uh, Empire Strikes Back? But is this film as iconic without the super sudden downer ending? Oof. Um, depends on who you, I guess you ask, but this film is iconic. I think mainly because of the if, transformation. Right, right, right. But as a whole, I wouldn't. Now nah, I wouldn't dare compare it. I don't think. With Star Wars at this point. Well, I mean, but do you think that this movie is considered to be as good of a movie overall as it is? yeah, yeah, yeah. If it would have copped out and went for, like, a happy ending rather than this downer ending. ending. Yeah. This very just sudden grim. Yeah, it really is. It's just like, boom, he's dead, and that's it. And that's it. And, she like, she's distraught, and then credits. Right. I think for the sake of of argument, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that he did chose to go that route. You know, instead of, yeah, just, you know, like I said, copping out and we'll make it a love story instead. It's like, no, no. Ah, that's a good question, man. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with yes. I think so. Mm. I think so. I think yeah. if, if this film went more like that happy ending, I don't think it would be as iconic as it is now. No way. I don't think so either. And that, that stayed with me, like immediately stayed with me. I was yeah, because like, it's like, holy oh, shit, shit that's what? it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> And it's not even, like, an epilogue of getting to see, like, her come to terms Nothing. with it. You That's just it. distraught. I fucking fell for this guy. He turned into a werewolf and just got killed in front of me and done. Yeah, no. Oof. Oof. It's tough, man. But I think, like I said, looking at this film from that point of view, like, knowing who Jan Landis is prior to this film, you know, people are probably thinking, all right, it's going to be a blend of comedy and horror you know, yes, yes it is, but it is a horror film through and through, plain and simple. And I think that ending does drive that point home. And uh, I just think uh, doing a little bit more research into this film and knowing how this film came to fruition and then using some of the symbolism in this film for a larger allegory. And I think this film is really cool because it, it's still one that's, that gets explored. I mean, we're exploring it, right? You can take it for just a simple werewolf film, too. I mean, it's that simple as well. Mm-hmm. But I think because of what we do, I, I find that there's a lot of layers to this film that goes beyond the film itself, is, I guess, what I'm trying to surmise it as. So I appreciate in those terms. 
I'm glad that we finally get to talk about this film too because you know it is an iconic film for that simple fact <laughs> I think we for sure have to also hit the howling this year yeah 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 and I know that was what you were alluding to with you know mm-hmm. it's like ah uh, I do like the howling a lot do I've... we finish off the trilogy from 81 though I mean not a true trilogy but right. there was three werewolf movies released that year because you have Wolfen as well <laughs> Oh uh you know i wouldn't be opposed because it's if it were like 10 films in 81 that were all werewolf films like oh fuck but yeah, i'm not opposed to it just to see i mean we're not going to do it next week no no not jimmy but, but at some yeah, point yeah. it'd be kind of neat no I, I think for for this particular episode too is like i'm glad we actually talked about this film first mainly because i no discredit to her i like Dee wallace a lot so mm-hmm. She's been in a lot of films we've already talked about. But it would be in a neat way because eventually we are going to explore Joe Dante and mm-hmm. his films. So um, there is a common thread to both of those films. And it happens to be Rick Baker. So we'll be talking about him again on that film. This is neat. Three werewolf movies in one. What was the fucking marketing like in 1981? I remember living <sighs> through dueling fucking asteroid movies. Yeah. And how annoying that bullshit was. Like... I, you know, that's a good point. I whew. I mean, I was born in 81, so I don't remember. But right. Yeah, marketing is different. I mean, if it was anything like um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, <laughs> you know, different ball game. I don't know. That's interesting. Oh, and I mean, which of these were even getting marketing? Like Landis, I'm sure this got decent marketing because it had yeah. Landis. Yeah. I mean, How early in Joe Dante's career is? This is, it's pretty early in his career. Yeah. So Landis had already established himself with like the Blues Brothers and mm-hmm. Animal House and shit like that. So they would have been like, yeah, we'll hype up the next Landis movie, but yeah, but Dante uh, might not have gotten as much money thrown at his. But man, yeah. And Wolfen, who did Wolfen? <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> uh, we'll find out eventually, but yeah, no, I think it's going to be fun to explore those films because you're right, there's not very many really good solid werewolf films out there. But when they do stand out, we've got to talk about it, man. So for argument's sake, I, I'm glad we got to cover this one first. Really cool introduction, I guess, for us going into John Landis, too. So one last thing before we end off, too. Did you ever watch American Werewolf in Paris? I did, actually. I know a lot of people don't like that film. I, I think it's like kind it. of fun. I kind of like it. I like Julie Depley. I like, I can't, I I like Tom Everett him. Scott. Yeah, he's, he's good. I think he plays the part well. And it's got a killer soundtrack. Yeah. And... I always remember that trailer. Yeah. With her taking the shirt off and then werewolf. Yeah, and I'm like... It's burned into my brain. (laughs) Coincidentally, funny enough, is when this film was first getting made, in terms of like, this relates back to to Griffin Dunn, the guy who played Jacobin, is they had to have a certain amount of permits for American actors to work inside of England, right? And... His was kind of like the fourth work permit, and John Landis was like, if you don't give us the work permit to use Griffin Dunn, then I'm going to rename my film, call it American Wolf in Paris, <laughs> <laughs> etc. Yeah, and it's just, that's what I'm saying, funnily enough, that film got made much later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't know how much John Landis plays a part in that film, if at all. I don't know if anything. I think he got like a character's bio credit. But still, it's like, I, I kind of do like that film. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you can give me some grief, but I like it. I thought it was fun. I haven't seen it. It's not probably. Great, let's but... see. It came out in 97. Yeah. I probably haven't seen it since like 99. Yeah. 
I used to see reruns mm-hmm. every now and then, but like not the greatest film. It's not the worst either. But between stretch. 97 and 99, I probably rented it like five or six <laughs> yeah. times, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, for sure. We'll probably talk about it. <laughs> not opposed, once again. <laughs> not opposed. But uh, yeah, dude, it's been a while since we've done a werewolf film too, and I think it was... Dog, Dog Soldiers. Soldiers was the last one, so it's been a while in between. And unless you count, I mean, we had to talk a lot about uh, yeah. werewolves when we talked about the Verdlock, but yeah, that. But that was more of a vampire version of a Verdlock. I guess we could also argue too that Trick or Treat. Oh, but that was way before Dog Soldiers, yeah, wasn't I mean, it? Like, or was it after? It might have been. After. I can't remember. Oh fuck! Somewhere between we smoked there. it away. <laughs> yeah, we gave a disclaimer earlier. <laughs> No shit, that was fun. I'm glad I finally watched all of it. Yeah, man. Holy fucking Nazi werewolves. Yeah, that, I like said. That's so many, my takeaway. So many unique, like I said, that dream within the dream, the Nazi stuff, the transformation. Yeah, man. Just I'm, I enjoy this film. I see why people hold it dear to them. You know, especially the time period it came out in. That made me think a little bit too. Like some of the films that were coming out around that time. Was like this was a, a really unique, interesting take on an old story. You know. Mm-hmm. Just told in a different light. So, uh, yeah, I enjoy it, man. Uh, me too. Shit, we have next week picked for once. Oh, I know. We are going to be fulfilling <laughs> a request from like a year and a half ago. So sorry, Bailey. That's okay. Well, we, we've got it now. Next week, we will be covering the film American Satan, <laughs> which, I mean, full disclosure, like the person who recommended it even said it wasn't the greatest film, which almost makes me more excited to talk about it. <laughs> There's very little facts that I know about it. The things that I do are going to be interesting. Yeah, I said the only thing I know about is what you told me about it. So So American Satan next week. That's going to be fun. In order to listen to it, please hit subscribe however you're listening right now. Rate and review if it's possible. That just helps get us into the algorithm so that more people can listen to us because that would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. You can always check out our back catalog of episodes over at the website, friedsquirms.com. Through links on that website, you will notice that we are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. So you can check me out over on General Nerdery. I know Danny has some things in the works. That'll be like the best place to go to to see everything that this channel is going to end up offering or this network or however we want to fucking put it. Like I said, it's already seeming like it's going to grow a lot faster than I was planning on. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the exciting thing. It's it's a new year, it's a new decade, and we've got some pretty interesting works in the making. So You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you guys. That would be super dope. Yeah, for sure. Oh, you can check us out on the social medias. Just search for Fried Squirms. We're there. Like, we're, we're what comes up. Precisely. Well, try not to take a year and a half off in between requests, but we still like your requests if you have you know, suggestions. Or once again, if you're in the industry need somebody to put some eyeballs on your films, let us know. Yeah, that's all I have, other than stay off the fucking moors. That's right. Beware the moon, lads and lasses. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried squirms. Oh! <laughs> 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 <Cookie> Christmas! <laughs>